0: Welcome to New Books in Journalism, part of the New Books Network. I'm Jenna Spinelli, an instructor in the Donald P. Belisario College of Communications at Penn State. I'm joined today by Kathy Roberts Ford, professor of journalism at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, and one of the editors of Journalism and Jim Crow, White Supremacy and the Black Struggle for a New America, which was published in 2021 by the University of Illinois Press. Kathy, welcome to the New Books Network. Thanks so much for having me, Jenna. So there's so much to dive into in this book, and I'm excited to do that with you. But uh, before we do, I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about your background and and research interests and how this project fits into it. I, I read that you described this book as your passion project for
1: the past couple of years. So this project began um, really as an independent study with an undergraduate student of mine who was taking my history course titled uh, The Black Freedom Struggle in the Press. And for the first time, he learned in my class about this system of convict leasing um, that infected, inflected uh, social life in the South, um, for decades in the late 19th um, into the early 20th century. And he was just so outraged at that. And he, he, believed he had had a really strong high school education in history, and he had, but this was just not part of his understanding. So he wanted to do an independent study with me. I said yes, as long as we somehow find a way to, to learn about convict leasing and somehow con- learn something about the press. since so I'm a press historian. So we embarked on this multi-year project, um, reading all the convict leasing literature we could, looking for press connections, and we landed on this story that we re- I tell in the the book that he co-writes with me, the chapter on um, these Henry Flagler and Henry Plant in Florida in the late 19th century and how they build uh, these uh, tourism empires of resorts and railroads up and down the east and western coast of Florida. And they do that using convict labor and um immigrant debt peonage labor and they control uh, public knowledge of the of their labor and other machinations by buying controlling interests in you know critical newspapers in the state they also manage uh, flagler manages to quash um, a a, a massive justice department investigation into his peonage practices. So all of that is this really long way of saying um you know it starts with my teaching it's it, the project started with my teaching it started working with a student who was just curious um and um then you know, once we found that one that one instance, I began finding them all over in the South, and I knew that there was a big story here that's been um, ignored by journalism historians, and um, I thought it needed to be told, and so that that's when I talked to Sid Bettingfield, a close friend and colleague, said. asked Sid, talked about it with Sid, got his ideas. And then we decided, you know, we need to write about this, but we need a lot of historians involved. It's way too big a project for us to get done in just a couple, a few years, um, just by ourselves. And it felt really urgent because we were writing during the Trump presidency and these, um, the rise of white supremacy, um, you know, increased or at least more visible uh, anti-Black violence by police um, and, you know, the, the use of, of the, the role of right-wing news media in um, in um, white supremacist uh, rhetoric and sharing it more broadly, but also in um, Trumpism and in anti-liberal and in threats to democracy. So, that's a little bit, I think you also asked me about my background, though. Yeah. Did you ask me that question? <laughs> I did. I did. <laughs> well, I wonder, so you can probably hear, as can your listeners, that uh, this is a Southern accent <laughs> that you hear, um, but since your listeners can't see me, um, I am, I'm a white woman, I'm a middle-aged white woman. I grew up in the South and East Tennessee, and, um, you know, as I've, uh, I certainly was taught a, a very blinkered um History of this country, and I've spent a large part of my adult life educating myself much more broadly on American history, and um, on, a, in particular, the 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 um, black American experience in U.S. history. Um, it's become a special interest of mine, um, but. I'm also becoming more interested recently in the experience of uh, other ethnic groups, other racial and ethnic groups in this country as well. So uh, you know, just for for lots of reasons, these things matter to me. they They should matter to all of us, I think. Of course,
0: yeah, and this is this is a really powerful uh, collection you've you've put together. Um, can you, uh, to, to sort of start things off here, can you orient us a little bit more to the the time period that, that you're covering and also this conception of the New South that comes up throughout the book?
1: Yes. So we're looking at the role of white newspaper editors and publishers in helping to build white supremacy in the wake of the end of Reconstruction. So just to remind everyone, Reconstruction is this um, really sh- incredibly short but hopeful period, um, roughly the 12 years after the end of the Civil War, when there develops across the American South through federal intervention um, by racial governments. And um, this is the time when Three amendments are passed, what we call the, the Reconstruction Era amendments. Three amendments to the Constitution that um, provide robust uh, civil rights protections and rights to um, n- the newly freed, um, what what old, you know historians used to call freedmen, right? But to um, to Black Americans who had been recently liberated liberated or liberated themselves from slavery in the South. And so the the 13th Amendment uh, outlawed slavery. Um, the 14th Amendment uh, gave citizenship rights to uh, black Americans and gave them the equal protection under the law. And then the 15th Amendment gave them voting rights. And so all these Reconstruction-era amendments greatly expand um, the Democratic project in the United States and include Black Americans in that project. And in the South, uh, Black Americans are doing this incredible work in uh, that Reconstruction period um, up until like roughly 1877 where they are um, re-knitting their families, which many had been um, torn asunder um, during slavery years. They were building communities, building community um, institutions and networks. They were gaining literacy. They were building public schools. They were were learning business skills and building all kinds of political and economic and um, community capacities. And of course, participating in state legislatures um, and in government in, in the South. Um, but when reconstruction came to an end in 1877 roughly there 1876 1877 um, you begin to see white Democrats um, white Democrats take back control of government and all areas of life and uh, part of what they're trying to do white Democrats um, and including white newspaper editors and publishers during this time who are collaborating very closely and actively with the um, Democratic politicians and office holders and business leaders and more, and people of the cloth as well, um, what they begin to do is figure out, well, what's going to be this new, how are we going to create a society um, in the wake of the end of the Civil War, the end of Reconstruction, um, that is based on racial caste, the way we want it to be, <laughs> um, Given that slavery is a dead institution, what, what is that going to look like? How are we going to do that? So they have to invent a new racial caste system. And white newspaper editors and publishers are at the middle of, center of it from the very beginning.
0: Right, and it's it's in fact um, one of the the editors uh, you you write about uh, Henry W. Grady from the Atlanta Journal Constitution, as I understand it, is is one of, if not the first people to begin using this separate but equal idea. I think he calls it equal but separate, right? But he really yeah. helps bring this into the the mainstream.
1: Yeah, he does. So Henry W. Grady is. Um, It was the, actually, then it was called the Atlanta Constitution. Today, the Atlanta Journal. But easy, we all, I do this all the time, the slippage between these newspaper names as they are today and what they were in the past. So it's not going to be the first time we do that in this uh, podcast interview, I bet, Jenna. Um, And I'll probably be the next one to do it. Um, But so Henry W. Grady, um, at the age of 30, becomes managing editor of the Atlanta Constitution. And he... he and his peers quickly turned the Atlanta constitution into the most powerful newspaper in the South and the most powerful Southern newspaper in the nation in terms of wide circulation and influence. Um, And he also popularizes um, this notion of the new South. He didn't invent the idea and ideology of the new South, which you mentioned earlier is this um, concept that we talk quite a bit about in um, in the book, but he popularizes it. And, um, That that New South ideology, it's all about um, healing sectional uh, ruptures between North and South, right? It's about sectional reconciliation in the wake of the Civil War. It's about um, enticing Northern industrial capital into the South, right? And getting Northern businessmen, men of wealth to invest in Southern industry and build out Southern industry. It's about attracting um, immigrant labor from the North into the South. Um, it's about uh, promising, making all kinds of promises about happy race relations in the South so that um, Northern investors and white immigrants, um, many of them from Europe, uh, newly arrived from Europe, um, will come down into the South to um, join these, these projects. Um, and But it's also about white supremacy. I mean, it's it's shot through with the ideology of white supremacy and the practices of what become the the practices of white supremacy during, um, this period, these periods. Um, and as you were mentioning, Henry W. Grady, he also popularizes this notion of equal, but separate, right. That, oh, you know, we've got happy race relations in the South between, um, white Southerners and black Southerners. Um, and that's because we, uh, live equal, uh, You know, equally because, hey, we've got these Reconstruction era amendments that say that we must be equal, but we're separate. You know, we live separately. And that's the great the great promise. It's the great law, really, that becomes enshrined eventually in Plessy v. Ferguson in uh, the late 1890s. And uh, that becomes the edifice on which the whole Jim Crow Society of the South is built with this constitutional imprimatur from the Supreme Court and that, uh, you know, fateful and terrible Supreme Court decision.
0: So what is what is the the line from Grady and his contemporaries to the Supreme Court in the what, what would become the Plessy decision?
1: Well, I think the line is really um, it's national media and it's discussions in national media. So he, so Grady, he's not only writing in the Atlanta Constitution, which is read widely uh, around the country and certainly by people in positions of power, but he also in 1885 becomes in uh, involved in this national high-profile debate um, with a, a prominent Southern writer who had. That's living in exile in the north by the name of George Washington Cable, who pens a, 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 an an essay that becomes a a topic um, of prolonged conversation among elite certainly elite Americans. Um, and that essay is about the freedmen's. It's called the Freedmen's Case and Equity, which in which you know George Washington Cable, this white novelist from Louisiana, who also becomes an essayist, is is writing um, on behalf you know, writing, saying that black Americans deserve civil rights. And we, you know, we have a constitution <laughs> that gives them civil rights and they have a great case of for their civil rights. And in the South, they're not given their civil rights. So he's right. He writes this piece. And then, um, the editors of the magazine, I think, I think it's a century. They, um, they write to Henry. There's such a, they get so much blowback from people in the South about this essay that they invite Henry W. Grady, this great celebrated Southern editor in the South, to write a response to um, George Washington Cable. And, and Grady does. And in that piece, he writes all about this equal but separate. And it, it, that term becomes, um, begins to circulate more and more widely in public discussions of these issues.
0: Yeah, you um you talked at the at the very beginning about uh the the railroad and this notion of, of convict labor. That is a, a theme that really carries through the book. Several of the chapters talk about this this relationship between the the railroad and the the prisons and the newspaper and the coal it all sort of yep. comes together in this very interesting way across several states. Uh, can
1: can you talk more about what those relationships look like? Yeah, it, it does. I think on the surface, like uh, I, I it, it seems confusing. Like, what do all these things have to do with one another? And what are news, What role are newspapers playing in in this? Um, But as it turns out, there were lots of newspaper editors who, if they didn't have um, their own controlling interest in convict lease system, like Arthur S. Collier did in Tennessee, um, that maybe they were someone like Henry W. Grady, whose um, buddies, his closest political friends, who he helped Keep in power um, in the U.S. Senate and in the governorship in the state of Georgia across the 1880s, um, they all um, held interests in the convict lease system. So, real, and and so they they grew, they amassed huge wealth off um, holding these interests in the convict lease system. And convict laborers during this period very often were put to work um, building railroads and, um, or working in coal mines. And of course the coal mines were, had these tight ties to railroads as well, because railroads were necessary to move coal from one place to another. Um, and this of course brings up the question, you know, what is convict leasing in the first place and, and how did it, how did it operate? So, um, after the civil war, there were so, there were very few, um, jails and prisons in the South and, uh, Reconstruction era governments uh, created this, you know, they began to use convict leasing, that is, they didn't have a place to house prisoners, but they could put them to work for private concerns, they would lease them, right, as if they were commodities, they would lease them to um, private concerns like uh, railroad builders and uh, canal builders and uh, coal, coal mine owners, etc., turpentine um, companies and phosphate companies, and so they would be they would be leased out. And as you can imagine, um, laws began to be passed that basically criminalized being black in the South. Um, this is the end of the Civil War, and and they just grew more expansive after the end of Reconstruction. And so these laws would often criminalize uh, vagrancy that is not being employed. Moving from place to place, um, and uh, so black men, predominantly, but plenty of black women and children, would be arrested. Um, not always on trumped up charges, but a lot, very often on these trumped up, uh, on trumped up charges or very minimal charges, um, leased out to uh, private concerns, where they would be. There was very little interest in those who ran these. Um, convict labor camps and, and really protecting the lives and bodies of their prisoners. Uh, The attitude as um, one of the historians has written at Mancini, I think was, you know, one dies, get another, right? You can. And so of course the political, uh, the criminal justice system and the policing system, they were in cahoots oftentimes with these um, private concerns, at least leased out convicts. They had, they would create common cause with one another. And um and um this also became became a way um just to keep these uh corporate and company concerns going and making money hand over fist by not having to pay any labor. Um, And newspapers, because some of these newspaper editors were um, so entrenched with those who owned the convict lease, as Henry W. Grady was with Alfred Colkett, uh, James E. Brown, uh, J- I'm sorry, Joseph E. Brown, John B. Gordon. These were the three men in the so-called Atlanta ring who moved among the governor's office and the two U.S. Senate seats for the state of Georgia. They all had interests in the convict lease and they were they all made expansive wealth off um, brutalizing black men, women, and children in convict labor camps, um, and Henry Grady had a vested interest, and in, he and he he protected and defended convict leasing in the Atlanta Constitution throughout his the 1880s because he had a vested interest in keeping these men happy and and furthering their, you know his his power was tied up in their power, um, and so you, you you see these connections and these really interesting these interesting ways and they have to be kind of like, it's been so papered over or they, you, you see little glimpses in different historiographies um, of this period. But then when you read across all these historiographies and you begin to put it all together, I um, you begin to get the, to see that picture.
0: Yeah. And, and you saying papered over there uh, reminded me of, of another characterization of, of Grady, which was that he was um, sort of, mild or, you know, maybe not as as racist or or white supremacist or, you know, history's kind of judged him that way. I'm not sure if the same claim can be made about the other editors you, you write about. But where where does that that impression come from? And is it is it related to what you also talk about, about the news organizations themselves not being really you know, willing to turn the spotlight on themselves and the, the, the role that they were playing here?
1: I think it's true that news organizations, it's taken them a very long time and only really recently um, to begin putting the spotlight on themselves and offering apologies and accounts of um, past coverage that has um, been incredibly unfair and unjust to um, people of color um, and black Americans. Um, but I also I often think they miss the point that, it's, it, that they miss some of the other pieces of the story where their editors and publishers and owners did more than just either ignore the black community or portray them in, um, unflattering ways, um, and unfair ways. They also often exercised this hard power, Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, in which they encouraged lynchings and instigated lynchings, played critical roles in, um, um, violent, uh, organized um, Democratic Party campaigns meant to quash Black uh, political participation in voting. And th- we tell some of these stories uh, across journalism and Jim Crow. And I think I've strayed a little bit from your question. Can you bring me back? To- oh, that's
0: okay. Yeah. That's okay. Um, actually we'll, we'll come back to that at the end, but you know, picking up on this, this idea of some of the, these narratives around lynching and things there, there's a very powerful chapter in, in the book that goes into to pretty exhaustive detail about how some of this played out. But, um, the, you know, the, the, main driver here is that these newspapers were amping up racial fear and, and hysteria and, you know, very much untrue stereotypes. And we look at them now and we think, oh my goodness, they just made this stuff up, right. (laughs) About how they, they characterize black people. And I guess I'm wondering, you know, at the, the time, did they know that they were fabricating things or did they were they going off of what other white people in the community, whether it's law enforcement or whoever told them? And did they did they think they were reporting something that had some element of of truth to it?
1: I think it was um, both of those things at different times and in different instances. It really was instance specific. Um, but, you know, I think what's so what's been so illuminating for me Um, As I look back on this history and I'm investigating and trying to think about it, not, you know, trying to keep at bay what might be my presentist instincts, which is to read it from, you know, present day values and make sense of these past things from present day values, but to really try to, in and, and, you know, get myself back in those, those moments and be historically authentic. Um, I think what what I remind myself of constantly or I am reminded of constantly is the black journalists of the era who documented this, all the, these lynchings as they were happening. And they like I B. Wells famously, um, unpacked and what was happening, figured out what it was that was happening, which is that in most instances, uh, lynching when black men and women and children, but typically black men were lynched, uh, they would be, uh, they were targeted because they were um, either uh, growing and trying to participate political, politically in their communities. Or they had growing economic power and there was white uh, jealousy against and um, white efforts to try to get them out of the marketplace and still take their wealth and take their businesses away from them. And so one of the the tropes that you often see in the white press of the period is that this black man sexually assaulted this white woman and uh, black this is what you know that. The, the trope, um, is it's over and over and over again as a justification for the extra legal killing murder, often in these mass, brutal, unbelievably, um, just un- unbelievably horrific, um, mass spectacle lynchings. Um, the, the, as the so-called excuse, the justification, is often um, that this um, black man sexually assaulted a white woman. And as Ida B. Wells made clear, very rarely did anything happen of that nature. She called it the, the old threadbare lie that's used as a as a justification in so many lynchings historians and those who have studied them, and Ida B. Wells herself at the time and other Black journalists who investigated found that uh, those justifications were just straight out false. So I've no doubt that some white journalists believed what uh, people in the white community told them or, or white newspaper editors and publishers, or but um, many of them, I think, knew what what was going on, and they they simply... They simply were um, creating a, a buying into a system and a way of thought and a way and justifications that were on their face what they were. Right.
0: And, and I'm so glad you you brought up um, Ida B. Wells and the other black journalists working in the the, the region during this time. Um, can you talk more about uh, efforts to develop a black press uh, in this, this new South climate. I, as I was, as I was reading, I, I couldn't help but think about it in today, what we might think of in terms of like audience and engagement or audience strategy, right? So there's this audience of people who had been, you know, formerly enslaved and, and have varying levels of, of ability and interest in reading. So they were, they were up against, you know, all the the sort of racism and, and white supremacy aside, they were up against uh, challenges on, on multiple fronts, it seems, when it came to to organizing and really getting something off the ground.
1: They were. And, um, you know, there was a, the Black press uh, in the late 19th, middle of the late 19th century and early 20th century really operated in a separate public sphere from the white press. And so you have a Black press and a Black public sphere of conversation and um, institutional creation and um, efforts to, um, promote black interests and to reform, uh, black, the black, uh, reform the American legal system and American society to, uh, recognize Black humanity and Black civil rights, um, and protect Black economic interests. Uh, And then you have a a white press and a a white public sphere that in many instances is paying very little attention or actively working in the South, very actively working to build a very different kind of world, what we call a a very illiberal democracy um, for white people in the South, but for nobody else. and you know the black press in the South and the black press in the North, um, they they can op- they operate in under very different conditions, and so the black press in the South is often having to work. Because they they you know they live within this uh, what quickly becomes an incredibly violent white supremacist threatening environment, they um, are having to sometimes pull their punches about if not always about the issues that they face then often about the people at the center and the specifics of what's happening around them. Um, journal black journalists in the north could be much more militant, and they were, and be much more interventionist in um, trying to help Black Southerners um, and to push for federal anti-lynching laws and to organize against um, or organize for whatever the the cause or, or law or injustice happened to be. Um, and so, you know, the Black press was very well organized, very well connected one with the other. It's not that the Black press was a monolith. There were different, um, different ideas and different political commitments and different notions of the way forward. But what was similar and what knitted the Black press together at this time was this commitment to um, advocacy, on behalf of Black America and on behalf of Black Americans. And also, as DeWeston Haywood writes so beautifully in his chapter in our book, they were committed to notions of... Uh, To a journalism that was working, that's values were oriented toward building a multiracial and just democracy and what um, was often called by black journalists of the era, a new America, whereas you don't see those same kinds of values or commitments, often not in the white press in the South, for sure, but not often in, in many places, not in the white press in the North.
0: Yeah, sure. No, this is this is the era in the north of, you know, the the start of of Penny Dailies and and yellow journalism. And yeah, very, very much not, I don't want to go as far as to say it's the opposite of trying to to advance democracy, but very much more business focused as as opposed to, you know, civically focused, I suppose.
1: Yeah, I would say, you know, the late like the 1880s, 1890s, you be get you get these mass produced newspapers in in the North, and it's very you know they they even though there's, some of them are still connected to political parties, most of them, many of them claim independence, and um, it, it is about commerce. It's about it's about you know uh, newspapers is big journalism and newspapers is entertainment, and and they do cover um, national affairs and public affairs, and some of them do have notions, think of themselves as. Um, even then as involved in um, um, serving the public good in some way. Um, and then in the early 20th century, you get muckraking late 19th, early 20th century, you get muckraking journalists, you know, these efforts to try to reform, you know, corruption and government. And then um, corporate America at the time, what well, was, you know, business America at the time, Um But it is it's still a journalism looked very different then, (laughs) perhaps than it did, you know, a little bit once we get a little bit further into the 20th century.
0: So, you know, talking about this idea of of changes that that start to happen toward the tail end of this period that you cover the Society of Professional Journalists is is established and there are some. So there's some establishment of, of industry norms or this move to, you know, objective style reporting or maybe trying to move away from some of this direct connection to the party machines and all, all, all the rest of it. How, how do some of these um, developments, you know, impact, you know, a lot of these, these institutions, the, the, the white press in, in the South?
1: What we found overall is that uh, so many of the venerable white urban dailies of the South um, in, during that moment in the 1920s and after when newspaper or big urban newspapers across the country really, and, and American journalism in general, um, began to professionalize. When you begin to get these codes of ethics that um, become these... Um, norms that news industry, the news industry as a whole is meant to follow and practices that are more rationalized and an objective method of news gathering and verification and um, accuracy. It's not that all of these things didn't exist exactly before the 1920s, but they become much more codified, right? And objectivity as a standard itself gets fully articulated and as a method for gathering the news and making sense of the news and assessing the news becomes this God standard in American journalism. Uh, What happens in the South is that these, uh, these norms and methods become, you know, really um, encoded by whiteness. And, you know, you know, there's still massive bias and not just bias, but massive white supremacies that structuring notions and practices that are structuring how um, the ideologies of, many white newspaper editors and publishers in the South. And so what happens is you get these claims to neutrality and disinterestedness and to independence and objectivity coming out of these white newspapers. Um, and yet there they are um, doing everything they can to um, to keep white supremacy as, a, a, you know, the political economies of white supremacy, the social order of white supremacy of white supremacy to maintain them, um, to, they, they, many of these editors and publishers, uh, collaborate with political, um, cronies, um, behind the scenes without admitting it, uh, in the paper, or it's, it's just, it becomes sublimated. Um, and, you know, they make these claims. Meanwhile, they're ignoring, um, you know, civil rights activities and not covering them and, um, they they practice you know this whiting out of uh, black community issues and then of course continue to use um, con- continue all kinds of racist practices in their news coverage when they do cover black life
0: right and at at the same time uh, there's also a chapter in the book that that covers the way that a, a an entire generation or or several generations to to come of, of black journalists were were effectively silenced and so that also it's it's not just that there's this sort of latent white white supremacy but as i understand there the the ability of black journalists to push back against it is also becomes very much
1: limited. Blair Kelly writes this wonderful absolutely beautiful stunning chapter toward the end of the book. Um, about uh, J. Max Barber, who is the uh, editor of a a really important but short-lived journal in Atlanta um, called Voice of the Negro. And J. Max Barber uses that journal to join the fight against uh, segregated streetcars in the South. And he he is... um, He's a very effective organizer um, in that movement and very effective in using his uh, journal toward in that fight, um, which, again, brings us back to this notion, right, that you've got Black journalists, North and South, who are enjoined. They are in it, in the struggle. <laughs> um, and, and that's what they do. That's what... Uh, these journalists do, you know, the Black press as fighting press, as advocacy press, um, is is something that is distinctive and, in my view, wonderful about um, the Black press. Uh, and so J. Max Barber is deeply involved in this work. Um, he also, though, is having to manage relationships with uh, Booker T. Washington, who is part owner of the, or has influence um, on the voice of the Negro. And um white leadership in Atlanta who aren't that crazy about uh, J Max Barber and the voice of the Negro and its advocacy for uh, Black Atlantans and Black Georgians and Black Southerners. And then you have what happens in um, in Atlanta in 1906, which is you've got two, um, you've got a newspaper editor for the Atlanta Constitution running for the go- governor, uh, Clark Howell. You've got Hoke Smith, who's the former editor of the Atlanta is it the Herald or the Journal? But running for governor, and uh, they they get into this war of words in which um, the in the pages of those two newspapers that are associated with them, um, they begin this um, this coverage of so-called black criminality in Atlanta and the problems of black criminality in Atlanta. And what they do is they um, inflame all this. Uh, white racial anxiety and hatred um, and pretty what happens in 1906 is what um, was at the time called a race riot but it was you know a, a massacre in which uh, white vigilantes go around um, in Atlanta killing you know beating hurting maiming and killing um, black citizens and uh, a number of black men are killed. Their bodies are, you know, ironically and horrifically laid at the feet of the Henry W. Grady statue in downtown Atlanta. Um, and these, and then J. Max Barber, um, who in his journal, you know, kind of tells the truth of what's happening. Like these white newspapers and these, uh, men running for governor that they stoked this violence. Um, they stoked the conditions that helped create the conditions that led to this massacre. And, um, you know, he was, uh, had to flee Atlanta, um, under threat of his life, uh, had to, he was exiled, uh, and affected, you know, he tried to keep the voice of the Negro going in Chicago, but he's not able to. And this is, This happened to Alexander Manley in um, Wilmington, North Carolina, in the North Carolina election of 1898. His press was burned. He was forced to flee under threat of life, never to return. This happens to Ida B. Wells. This happens repeatedly to Black journalists in the South. They are forced into exile. They are silenced, Um, or at least there's a massive attempt to silence them. And, you know, the outcomes have been tragic for Black America and for America as a whole and for democracy.
0: Yeah. And, and you, it, in the last chapter of the book, you trace some of those through lines from the end of this, this period that you directly write about through the Kerner Commission in the, the kind of the, the post-civil rights era to the American Society of Newspaper Editors, Project 2000, I believe it was called, uh, to try to increase newsroom diversity. Um, but those efforts seemed to, they, they did, <laughs> they came up short. And I, I think there's there's a, a connection, you argue, between sort of where this, this New South period kind of left off and, and the, the work that was not done and, and, and has not been done and is still not being done to the extent that it should be today.
1: Yeah, we wanted to make sure in the, that in our epilogue to the book, that because because the period we're looking at is really 1875 to 1920 or so, that's where we do the deep historical um, excavation and what we think is a corrective to not only you know journalism historiography, but also other areas of historical inquiry, including New South history, history of uh, convict leasing, history of lynching, uh, labor history. We, we're hoping we're making a, a useful intervention in a lot of these areas, but we, because we end around 1920, and we know there's so much that comes after. In our epilogue, we really wanted to, um, you know, at least give some very broad brush strokes that take us across the 20th century and help us think about the present moment that we're in. Um, when we were writing um, the epilogue and the introduction, you know, it was in the wake of. Um, the police killing murder of George Floyd. It was uh, during that summer of uh, racial protest in this country. It was in that same summer when so many black journalists um, were having very public conversations and demands for the news industry to do better in terms of diversifying, but in terms of um, build, you know, having black leadership in the, in the news room and also, you know, getting rid of this white normativity um, that shapes so much news coverage. Um, and so, uh, you know, Wesley Lowry wrote that really, what I thought as a spectacular um, editorial and or column in the New York Times about these these issues. And so many other journalists, have, Black journalists and thought leaders have talked about these, these things too. We wanted to be sure that we came back to those voices. Um, you know, the truth is that, We've been following, Black journalists have been, and the Black press has been the inspiration for the stories that we tell in journalism and Jim Crow, because they've told them first, we follow them. We followed those voices from the past. We followed and we read Ida B. Wells, we read her her work, we followed what she said about Grady and the line she drew between Henry W. Grady and uh, and the New South and the rise of these racial terror lynchings in the South. We followed W.E.B. Du Bois and what he had to say about Henry Grady and the New South. He said, you know, the New South is nothing more than an armed camp for intimidating black folk. Um, we followed T. Thomas Fortune's work, in which he, in, in writing for a series of uh, New York black newspapers, he just aggressively, um, day after day, year after year, went after Grady, even after his death, because Grady hung around. Grady was um, immediately he was he died prematurely at age thirty nine of pneumonia on his way back from giving. This highly celebrated and widely shared speech in Boston uh, in which she's basically it's just this massive argument against black voting rights and this argument that black men in the South have to be disenfranchised. And it's an argument that same what that the lodge bill in uh, Congress right now uh, that. You know, your one of your own uh, congresspeople is is trying to get through to protect black men in the South during elections. We're going to you know, that can't go. We've got to stop it. We've got to quash it. And they do. Right. The Southern filibuster works and they quash it. And then it becomes part of the Mississippi Plan of 1890. And then that where they create a constitutional amendment to the state. Uh, Constitution of Mississippi that disenfranchises Black men and Southern states do this all over. Uh, And by the time we get to the 20th century, Black men in the South, South can't vote. Um, You know, this is what Grady is, so much of what Grady's contributions have been. And yet his name is on Grady Hospital in Atlanta. His name is all over the public landscape. Um, of Atlanta and of Georgia. He's got a statue in downtown. And in fact, the journalism school at the University of Georgia, uh, the College of Journalism and Mass Communication is called the Grady College of Journalism and Mass Communication. The motto is we are Grady. It's a, you know, popular history is a powerful thing. Um, And the way in which whiteness has structured these tellings um, and these, the way in which the lost cause narrative hangs around and continues to inflect uh, public understandings of U.S. history is very, very real. There's a reason you have Republican conservative legislatures across this country passing um, what they're calling anti-critical race theory laws right now. What they are is uh, what the PEN America has called educational gag orders. They don't want... Uh, the history of uh, race in America being taught, right, right,
0: and you know, you bringing up uh, Wesley Lowry there uh, reminds me that that just this week, as we're recording in in mid February of twenty twenty two, Wesley was commissioned by the Philadelphia Inquirer to write uh, a piece called "A More Perfect Union," which is this expansive history of the the papers' dealings with with race and, and equity over the years. Um, this speaks to what we were starting to talk about earlier, which is journalism's lack of, of desire to look inward, right? So are things like this, this more perfect union piece, and I just saw one today from the, the Baltimore Sun, something similar. Is, is this the, the direction that things
1: need to be moving in? I do think this is the direction things to be moving in. I think, you know, these histories need to be ex- excavated, they need to be told, they need to be brought to light and understood. Um, and once that work is done, and there's conversations about what exactly is it that happened in the past? How did it happen? Why did it happen? And um, going beyond, I mean, coverage matters, but going beyond coverage too, and looking at the ways in which uh, these news institutions were themselves deep, in many instances, deeply ensconced in um, the political and economic systems and structures that create, that were white supremacists and that created white supremacist uh, laws and policies, et cetera. Um, That needs to be Looked at, but, but but after all that that historical work and examination is done, um, news institutions have got to do. They just have to commit more dollars, and um, to the hiring of black journalists and editors, um, and the elevation of of I mean the pipelines. But also, they need to. I think the news industry has to have a a serious conversation about. The ways in which news ethics and values and practices have been, uh, need to be reevaluated. I think they need to be reformed. I think they are shot through and have the way in which they've been practiced in um, white newsrooms with uh, implicit bias. And I think they often, because, you know, with this dedication to neutrality, Um, can often be a a massive problem. You know, Wesley Lowry wrote about there needs to be a commitment to moral clarity, and I can't agree more with him. I mean, there might be some, there's certain social conflicts, et cetera, where moral clarity is hard to find, but there are plenty. Uh, And racial justice is one of them, where moral clarity is uh, not that hard to discern. And uh, so is, you know, an insurrection on I think we can have moral clarity about an insurre- a violent insurrection on the U.S. Capitol in an attempt to overturn a, a free, fair, and secure presidential election. Um, I think that there are plenty of things we don't need to be neutral about, and we need a journalism that is committed to... Um, cer- to to upholding democratic values over being committed to neutrality. And that, I know, is really hard to do. And I don't know how to operationalize all of that exactly. But if you get a lot of really smart people together, and there are a lot of really smart people in American journalism, I think it can be done. Uh, But it's something that will be... You know, we'll need to continue to reevaluate over time.
0: Last question here for you, Kathy. Where does this work go next? You you touch on at the end of the book several other research avenues that this could take, or, or questions that are still unanswered. What are you working on, and and what do you hope others pick up uh, the the mantle from here?
1: Yeah, oh, that's such a great question. Thank you for asking it, Jenna. Um, so you know, we we do provide case studies of other other really important moments in the political and social development of the south um, and the the place for black americans in the south that need investigation Um, and so we 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 write about those in the epilogue and we say we hope somebody's going to write about these we don't have time to do them all but here are some and we hope um graduate students will begin to um become really interested in across many disciplines journalism communication political science um Black Studies. Um, there are lots of um, there are lots of spaces in the academy and uh, in the archipelago of our many disciplines where uh, you know graduate students would find these topics of I think of, of real import. Um, I know that um, my next project is about um, very much in the same domain, but I, I want to focus on racial massacres in America, in the United States, post-Civil War, um, up into the 20th century, all over the country. There are many, many, many in the South, but they existed elsewhere as well. And the role of um, the news industry, sadly, in either helping organize, instigate, inflame, or cover up these racial massacres. And the, what, the outcomes are, and you know, many of these are um, massacres of of Black Americans. But there were other massacres targeting other ethnic groups as well. And so, I'm just at the very beginning of that research, trying to uh, suss out, you know, find the points and the cases and make sense of it all. But that that's where I'm headed.
0: Right. Uh, was there anything else you wanted to to touch on, or, or that we we haven't covered thus
1: far? You have, this has been a great interview, Jen. I've just so enjoyed uh, talking to you about this. You are Definitely now, my very best, the best reader of this book I could oh, imagine. Oh, geez. Well, I don't know about that, but but thank you. Uh, and we will, in
0: the episode notes, we'll link to the book on the University of Illinois Press, as well as the the website you've set up for it. There are uh, lots of of great resources for newsrooms and for journalism educators there that folks can check out if they want to incorporate this book into their teaching and their work. And again, the book is Journalism and Jim Crow, which is available from the University of Illinois Press. Uh, Kathy, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much, Jenna.